It's good to be back with you and to see each one of you. <clears throat> Today we'd like to study an important passage out of the book of Galatians, <clears throat> and also next Sunday, one more important passage out of the book of Galatians. Now, who were the Galatians? Well, we believe they were basically the people to whom Paul and Barnabas weren't first went and did missionary work, Acts 13 and 14. <clears throat> As I understand it, the Galatians originated up in Galicia in basically the area of northeastern Germany. Also, another word or two are used. They're called Celts. Many of them ended up in Ireland and Gauls. In fact, the Roman name for France was pretty well Gaul. So as you think of Celts and as you think of all these, you think of the Galatians, the people who originated there in northeastern Germany. As far as the Romans concerned, they were all barbarians. <laughs> but God cared for them and he sent Paul and Barnabas to minister to them. Now, in the book of Galatians, <clears throat> a follow-up letter to the first missionary journey, perhaps the oldest book of the New Testament, we believe was written after, <clears throat> or rather before, the Jerusalem Conference. You can read about that in Acts chapter 15. We believe that were that not the case, Paul would have referred to the Jerusalem Conference and its decisions as he wrote to the Galatians. But since he didn't refer to that at all, Galatians was probably written before the Jerusalem Conference had occurred. Now, as you see, the primary scripture begins in Galatians 2.16, ends in Galatians 3.7. First of all, let's consider these first four verses of chapter 3. One thing it shows us is the all-sufficiency of faith. The all-sufficiency of faith, trust in Jesus, belief in God. Galatians were kind of getting off the track, some of them. So he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth, crucified among you? Only this I would learn from you. Good question now. Did you receive the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Of course, the answer to that would be by the hearing of faith, not by their works and the works of the law. So are you so foolish, having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh, by obeying the precepts of the law? Have you suffered so many things in futility, if it's yet in futility? He, therefore, who ministers to you the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and works miracles among you, 
Does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? So here we have that term again, the hearing of faith. And of course, the answer to that is not by the works of the law, it's by the hearing of faith. We have the all-sufficiency of faith that is being proclaimed. Then he uses Abraham as an example, verse 6. Even like Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Know you, therefore, that they who are of faith, the same, are the children of Abraham. As we think about the Holy Spirit, which last Sunday I shared a bunch of thoughts about the Holy Spirit, I'd like to highlight something I didn't mention last Sunday, namely the importance of the Holy Spirit in helping us in our prayer life. Prayer is so important. Prayer is basically just talking to God. Let me show you a few verses that you might want to jot down their references. They're so important. First of all, in chapter 8 of the book of Romans, we find in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, also helps our weaknesses because we don't know how we should pray like we should. But the Spirit itself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So the Spirit's praying for us and the Spirit is helping us pray to know what we ought to pray for. Very important in our prayer life. Second passage, book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. We ought to pray for fellow Christians, and we should pray in the Spirit. He helps us know what to pray and the right attitude and ideas in our prayer life. One further thought, back in the book of Jude, right before the book of Revelation, we find in the last part of verse 20, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. So we see the importance of the Holy Spirit in helping us in our prayer life. And the Holy Spirit is received by the hearing of faith, not by our own efforts. Now, having said all that, and bearing all that in mind, let's go back to the book of Galatians, this very important passage, chapter 2, beginning in verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, meaning the Old Testament works, but instead by the faith of Jesus Christ. So again, we see the preeminence, do we not, of faith as opposed to works. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. It's basically saying you can't be right with God 
by obeying the Old Testament law of Moses or any other morality or good things you might do. Now that's contrary to human nature. We tend to think we can earn our own way, we can work our way to heaven. But it's not on that basis, it's on the basis of our trust, our all-sufficient faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're justified by Christ, it says in verse 17. And when that's true, are we also found to be sinners? Is therefore Christ the minister of sin? <laughs> Let it not be, because if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Now verse 19. I remember they were having many years ago when I was in seminary, certain churches cooperating one was the Church of the Open Door in Los Angeles. One was a congregational church, a very biblical church in Pasadena. And I went to a couple of the special meetings, and the one in Pasadena, their pastor spoke on Galatians 2.19 here. For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live to God. Now I want to come back to that in a moment. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet, not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, because if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. If we could, you see, be saved and go to heaven by obeying the law, then why did Christ die? It was unnecessary. But you see, his death is necessary. He died for the sins of the world. And as we trust in him, as we acknowledge the great work he did and who he is, then we are forgiven and we get to go to heaven and we get to have the Holy Spirit in us and we get to live our lives here in this world for Jesus, there's a reason for living, a purpose for being here. That's to trust in Jesus and live for Jesus and let his marvelous and beautiful light shine through us. But let's look at this 19th verse here, chapter 2. I, through the law, am dead to the law that I might live to God. <clears throat> the law itself, the Old Testament law of Moses, sounds its own death knell. It speaks of its own demise. Through the law, I'm dead to the law. It's quite a statement. Now you might ask, how in the world could that be true? How does the law teach us that we can't do it through it? How does it teach us that actually we're dead to the Old Testament law eventually? Well, I believe one of the answers to this is found in the book of Jeremiah. A very important statement, chapter 31, beginning with verse 31. Jeremiah. <clears throat> and they shall teach no more, <clears throat> no, that's verse 34, back to verse 31. <clears throat> Behold, the days come says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant, a new agreement, a new law, as it were, 
a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So here's an amazing prophecy that this old covenant, this old agreement, this Old Testament that Moses instituted with Israel is going to be supplanted by a new covenant. And so right in the, what we call the Old Testament, in the prophecy of Jeremiah, the death and supersension of the Old Covenant is prophesied here. Days come, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers and the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So you see, he's talking about the Mosaic covenant, which my covenant they broke. Although I was a husband to them, says the Lord. He was good to them and helped them, and yet they didn't obey him. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. Here's the new one he's talking about. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. They shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin No more. Isn't that a marvelous prophecy? Imagine that, hundreds of years before Jesus came. It's prophesied that through the law, as it were, the law itself will be superseded and be fulfilled. A new covenant, a new agreement will take its place. Now, if you go with me to Matthew chapter 26 you'll find that Jesus inaugurates this new covenant, this new agreement. It's at the Last Supper. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples, and he said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and he gave thanks, and he gave it to them, saying, All of you drink from it, for this is my blood of the New Testament. Notice that, my blood of the New Testament, the new covenant, the new agreement, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So the inauguration of this new covenant prophesied by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, which is of a bit of a different kind of nature, is inaugurated by Jesus at the Last Supper. And then it was just a few hours before he died on the cross. He did shed his blood for our sins. The new covenant becomes effective, as it were. It supersedes and fulfills the old covenant. I, through the law, am dead to the law. It prophesies its own death its own demise, that I might live to God. Now, Apostle Paul, whom God used to write the book of Galatians, gives a personal word of how this worked out in his own life when later he wrote to the Philippians. Philippians, let's go over a couple books to Philippians chapter 3, a first-hand account 
how these things work in a person's life. Paul, you see, had been a Pharisee, and he was very anxious and careful and persistent and motivated to keep the Old Testament law, every jot and tittle, even every part as interpreted by the Pharisees. There were hundreds of interpretations, and you had to do them all, they thought, if you were to keep the Old Testament law. And so he was proud of the fact that he was a Pharisee, a religious man, and that he very carefully and fully did what the Old Testament law of Moses said he should do. But we see something amazing happen to him. Okay, let's go to Philippians chapter 3, beginning with verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh, in the things we can do. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh. Now he talks about it. If any other man thinks that he has whereof he may trust in the flesh, in other words, by obeying the law and being good, I have more. Why? Well, circumcised the eighth day from the stock of Israel. He was a, a Jew. From the tribe of Benjamin, one of the 12 tribes, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as concerning the law, the law of Moses, the Old Testament law, a Pharisee, one of the very, very strict parties, meticulously kept the Old Testament law as best they could, as I said. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. He thought Christians were so offbeat and so bad and so wrong that he persecuted them. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So as far as he was concerned and the Pharisees were concerned, he was really keeping it. But notice this statement, amazing. Verse 7, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Ah, something new has happened to him. Yes, doubtless, and I consider all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do consider them but dung or garbage or sewage that I may have Christ and be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, which he boasted in before, but that which is through the faith of Christ, again, the all-sufficiency of faith, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable to his death. Dead to the law. Alive in Christ. Those things go together, do they not? Now, you see, what Paul actually came to understand, whereas before as a Pharisee he depended on his own righteousness through the Old Testament law, what he came to understand is beautifully expressed in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Very important statement here. Romans 3, 19 and 20. 
Now we know that what things soever the law says, the Old Testament law of Moses, whatever it says, it says to them who are under the law, so that what? So that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Ah, what the law really then does, it shows us up to be sinners that were unable to complete the real underlying meanings of the law. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus helps us see what the law really boils down to. It's more than just the letter. It's the spirit and attitude. Therefore, verse 20, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law, get this, is the knowledge of sin. So he came to understand that. That was 100% reversal of how he'd been working on his own to keep the law and be thereby justified before God. Came to realize you can't do it that way. The only way you can do it is by trusting Jesus. What the law really does is it shows us up it's to be sinners and our great need of forgiveness is thereby revealed. Through the law, I'm dead to the law that I might live to Christ. And he had this marvelous change of thought, marvelous change of idea, marvelous change of life that he might live for Jesus. Not trying to justify himself, but being justified only through Jesus Christ who died for us and who rose from the dead. Now all this basically, you see, is a matter of grace. Now we sang about grace, didn't we? Grace, what is grace? Grace is basically a gift. Something is given to us that we don't deserve. What we deserve is judgment, but God gives us forgiveness and eternal life when we turn from our sinful life and put our faith, our trust in him. And through faith, God gives us forgiveness and new life. Grace is so important in the book of Galatians. And so he talks about it here in verse, uh, one of the verses here in chapter two. Also, he talks about it back in chapter 1. I'm good if I get the book of Galatians again here. Galatians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. To whom be glory forever and ever, amen. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him who called you to the grace of Christ to another gospel, which is not another, but there are some that bother you call from the grace of Christ. People were going and they're basically saying, we're not saved by God's grace, we're saved by our own works. We gotta be circumcised, we gotta keep the Old Testament law. And Paul is amazed that so soon after he had preached salvation by faith alone, by grace, not something we earn, not something we work for, that now they were leaving that. They were falling back on the idea we can justify ourselves, we've got to be circumcised, we've got to keep the Old Testament law. Instead, we're saved by the grace, unmerited favor, something we do not deserve. So he speaks about that in chapter 22, verse 
21, God's grace. And again, back in chapter 1, verses 5, 6, and 7. Now, having said all that, we come to this marvelous statement of verse 20, chapter 2 of Galatians, verse 20. This is what ought to therefore be the result in our lives once we've repented and put our faith in Jesus. This should be a daily experience, a new life. What happened to Paul has and should happen to us. He said, I'm crucified with Christ. Now, what in the world is he talking about? Well, when you're crucified, you're killed. But he was alive, so how can he say he's killed? Basically saying, the old man, my selfish, sinful self, I put that to death. I put that in the past. I've crucified sin in my life. When I was baptized, I pictured that death to sin and self. When I came up from the baptismal waters, I pictured the new life in Christ. First the crucifixion, then the new life. It's like Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but yours be done. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. That's the key. Christ lives in me. It's not my efforts. It's not my Old Testament obedience. It's not my morality. It's not how many people I give a handout. It's purely a matter of grace. It's a matter of Jesus living in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, live in this body, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is died in vain, in futility. So what's it boil down to? It boils down to the fact we can't save ourselves. Even by, like Paul tried, perfectly doing what the Old Testament law said, the Ten Commandments and all of the statutes and judgments and what have you. Even in our day and age, if we do everything we can, feed the poor, give all we have to help poor people, live a good, honest life and never tell lies, if we're the best we can possibly be, we see from the law that we're guilty because we don't come up to the high and holy standards of God. That was hard for me to understand as an unbeliever before I became a Christian. I became a Christian at 19 and really trusted Jesus. But it was hard to understand that I was a sinner because I thought I was a pretty good person. And as far as other people were concerned, I think I had high moral standards. But I didn't understand that isn't how you're saved. We need forgiveness, regardless how good we try to be. And trying is not achieving, though it's a first step. And so I had to acknowledge that I needed to be saved, to put my faith in Jesus. And of course, that had a great impact on the rest of my life and a great impact on my family, on who I married on our children 
and what they've taught their children. These things are to be carried on. These things are to be understood. These things are to be lived out. Christianity is not just a way of thinking. Christianity is a submission and trust in Jesus that turns into a new life as God's Holy Spirit lives in us and guides us. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. It's all sufficient. God does it all. The new covenant has been instituted. The old has been fulfilled and superseded. New Testament in the blood of Jesus. And so we trust him, don't we? If we don't, we should. And he can change our lives as he changed mine. I didn't choose June so much as God chose her and helped me understand that she was the one. But then he had to work on her to choose me too. These things work together. But many people, they don't even think about asking God when it comes to a matter of marriage. But we should. That's very, very important. And a Christian should marry a Christian, we learn in this scripture. Then they can be united in their faith and they can be united in their goals and their virtues and their morality. And they can be light to their family and to their friends. We are to be lights to each other, to our families, to our church family, to our friends. We're to let them know about Jesus and we're to live for Jesus. We need, along with Paul, to be able to say, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh in this body, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. May these thoughts encourage us in our faith and in our walk with the Lord and each other. Shall we pray? Lord, we thank you for these marvelous, wonderful thoughts of grace, of faith, of forgiveness, of power and understanding, of a revelation of why we're here, to live for God, to glorify and honor him. May we truly trust him. May we not trust our own goodness, but his alone. We thank you that even though we fail, he forgives as we repent and put our faith in him. Thank you so much. Lord, at this moment, may we dedicate ourselves to you in our hearts. We affirm our faith in the Lord Jesus. We affirm our commitment to him. Thank you for your forgiveness where we fail. Thank you for your power to so live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.